This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell, and there's not much more of a dissenting opinion in the United States than what we will be discussing today, which is agriculture in the United States has little to do with feeding the world and even less to do with providing quality, healthy food to the public. It's even more of a dissenting opinion when it's from someone who was raised on a family farm, has farmed for a significant part of their life, and has a degree in farm management. As today's guest will argue, agriculture and food have little to do with one another here in the States. U.S. agriculture actually produces far more livestock feed than it does food for, you know, humans like you and I. It's all because of the introduction of free market reasoning to food production, which has led to highly concentrated big agriculture with its huge farms that have changed farming from a way of life to being a big business. In doing so, agriculture has destroyed small-town rural America, no matter what members of those communities say or want you to believe. In a few minutes, we're talking agriculture, not food, with award-winning agricultural journalist Alan Giebert, who posted the Baffler magazine article, Farmed Out, American Agriculture is About Business, Not Food. Alan has worked as a writer and editor at Professional Farmers of America, Successful Farming, and Farm Journal. His syndicated column, The Farm and Food File, began in 1993 and appears weekly in more than 50 newspapers throughout the United States and Canada. Alan was raised on, a, on an 720-acre, 100-cow Southern Illinois dairy farm. He previously wrote Letter from America, a monthly perspective on U.S. farm and food policy for European and Asian publications. In 1997, the American Agricultural Editors Association honored Allen with its highest awards, Writer of the Year and Master Writer. Allen and his daughter, Grace, uh, Mary Grace Foxwell, collaborated and co-wrote the 2015 book, The Land of Milk and Uncle Honey, Memories from the Farm of My Youth. You can follow Alan on Twitter, or whatever the hell it's called nowadays, at Alan Giebert. That's G-U-E-B-E-R-T. Find his column at farmandfoodfile.com. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, how have you been? I've been all right. Uh, got a little psoriasis flare-up to keep life interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. Getting all itchy? Yeah, all itchy and all... Uh, did you know that when you have active psoriasis, your skin cells grow like... 30 times faster than everybody else's. No kidding. Do yeah. you have like an extra arm now? I, I'm waiting for something cool to happen. Because uh, nothing cool is happening no, so far. No, no, just... Uh, so do you have to get a prescription for that? Yeah, I'm on this uh, this biologic like injection thing that oh, seems crazy. to be helping. But, so it cured all the psoriasis all over my body, but now it's migrated to like pretty much my whole face and head. So, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, good lord. And of course, I uh, can't see the derm till November, so... Uh, Fantastic. So in the meantime... You have a whole month to look forward to. Yeah, it's, uh, I see it as an experiment. Also shadowing uh, Will Ippen is Nick Mann. Nick, anything new in your life outside of that outstanding International Workers of the World <laughs> hat that you have on? Really beautiful. 
uh, just keeping up with what's going on in Palestine and also attempting to read Marx's Capital. Oh, well, the best of luck to you. I gave up on that a very, very long time ago. I got through the Communist Manifesto and I was like, that's plenty for me. You should check out David Harvey has a good uh, kind of guided video series for reading that. Oh yeah, that's a very, you're right. I've uh, have seen that before, and uh, our guest who was supposed to be on Monday show, who was rescheduled for Thursday, Hadas Tier, she does these great little video. I don't know if she's doing them anymore on YouTube. If you look up her name, Hadas T H I E R, she does these great little like two minute YouTube videos about the uh, you know the theory of Marxism, the theory of communism, the theory of anarchism, whatever. It's she's just an economist who talks about that kind of stuff in little two-minute bits, and it's really great. So last week was my birthday, and I can celebrate it by not only taking the week off, but also throwing my back out, which canceled all my plans for fun, fun I desperately needed and was looking forward to very, very much, but instead I ended up sitting on ice for more than two days. That was followed by continuing to celebrate my birthday by having a wisdom tooth extracted, which put me right back on the liquid diet that followed my many surgeries last year, triggering my PTSD resulting from nearly 20 days in the hospital in 2022. And that's why for me, this is Hell. Will, what is this week's question from Hell for our listening audience? This week's question from Hell actually has a sort of front matter to it. Yeah, because not everybody knows this story. Exactly. So an impoverished rural community in Michigan is opposed to a multi-billion dollar vehicle battery plant because it's a Trojan horse for China, the Chinese Communist Party. With that in mind, how are the Chinese commies sneaking into your communities? <laughs> how are the Chinese commies sneaking into your community? We will share some of your question from hell answers as posted at Patreon coming up after our talk with Alan on Big Egg, brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Will has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is not causing yourself to vomit. Healthline.com had an article headlined, How to Stop Throwing Up After Drinking Alcohol. Ah, what an alluring headline that is. <laughs> I wonder if that's the first time that's been a headline. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, the story explains that to avoid vomiting after drinking, quote, eat small amounts of bland food. Small bites every so often can make a big difference. Get plenty of rest. Avoid drinking alcohol or hair of the dog cures and take an over-the-counter pain reliever. Headline.com explains, While you may have a friend that swears by vomiting as a hangover-cure approach, it's a dangerous one. Making yourself throw up can put greater strain on your esophagus. You're more likely to experience small tears that can damage the esophagus and potentially lead to bleeding. Intentional vomiting also increases your risk of acid reflux, damage to your teeth, and aspiration, which is when your stomach contents accidentally go into your lungs. I thought that was just being hopeful. I know. <laughs> I didn't know. So weird homonym. Uh, health, health Lines ends with, if you feel like you're going to vomit, it's best to let it happen naturally. <laughs> <laughs> Organically. Organic vomiting. 
you'll retch less and reduce your risk of additional health problems that can happen when you make yourself throw up. And I think that's the first time retch has been in a hangover cure. Which is surprising. <laughs> it is surprising. Um, that makes this week's hangover cure. Do not intentionally throw up. We got an email from Kim A, who has been listening to the show for as long as I can remember, and I'm not certain what that necessarily means, as my memory is mostly a blur. And not because I'm legally blind. There's a new study out that shows memory starts failing, starts fading, after you turn 50 years old. In my own personal study, human memory banks can only hold about half that much data. I have concluded from my one-person study that it is not that when you turn 50 you stop remembering stuff. If age determines memory clarity, then why don't five-year-olds remember coming out of the womb tin drum style? Sure, a 10-year-old may remember their day more clearly than an octogenarian, but that 80-plus-year-old has a lot more memories to store, and that kid is still basically an empty vessel. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. Possibly long-time listener Kim A., if my memory serves me correctly, writes to us via email at chuck at thisishell.com. Dear Chuck, I don't know if you've interviewed this fellow before. Thank you for saying fellow. Perhaps not quite as left-leaning as I prefer, but fentanyl production in Mexico, talk about a new drug war, guns, drugs, refugees, and China. Kim explains Sam Quinones, a journalist, author, and storyteller whose two acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction about Mexico and Mexican immigration, True Tales from Another Mexico and Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream, made him, according to the San Francisco Chronicle Book Review, the most original writer on Mexico and the border. His books include Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, and most recently, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Thanks for your show, Kim. When I read Kim's email, I thought Sam Quinone's name sounded familiar. Then I remembered him being on the show way back in June 2015. More accurately, I didn't remember that as much as I looked it up. And that's when we spoke with Sam about his book, Dreamland. And as I maybe remember, keeping in mind what a wreck my memory is, it was a really good conversation. You can find that interview at thisishell.com when searching on the name Quinones. That's Q-U-I-N-O-N-E-S. However, we did not have Sam on the show in 2021 when his book on fentanyl and meth, The Least of Us, was published in November of that year. Also in November 2021, I got COVID, so it makes sense that it flew under our radar. You too can email us at chuckatthisishell.com or message us via Facebook, Discord, Patreon, or whatever the hell Twitter is called today at This Is Hell Radio. And if you do, we'll likely read whatever you have to say on air. Coming up, the big difference between food and agriculture. Dan... Dan will share some of your answers to our most recent question from hell. We'll tell you what happened during our most recent Patreon podcast, which is available at patreon.com slash this is hell. And we'll tell you what's happening later this week on the show. No past inside the present this week with historian Dr. Sebastian Vupper. Sub returns next week to give us the historic context from the past. We need to have a better understanding of our present. Instead, following our talk with Alan, we will have this week in rotten history. Also, there's something I've been saying here on This Is Hell. 
since we started airing 27 years ago, way back in 1996. That has been very upsetting to some of our listeners. But a few weeks ago, I was vindicated. And nothing feels so good as being vindicated. We'll tell you what allegedly offensive word I've been using low these many years and how I have been exonerated of any said offense after our discussion on how agriculture is really not about food anymore. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell and wow, do we not know the value of the food we eat despite our obsession over its price. Low-cost, poor-quality food dominates grocery store and supermarket shelves in the United States, and it's destroying small-town rural America as well. Here to tell us how we ended up with such bad food and why it's tearing rural America to shreds, award-winning agricultural journalist Alan Giebert posted the Baffler Magazine article, Farmed Out, American Agriculture is About Business, Not Food. Alan, welcome to This Is Hell. It's really an honor. This writing is absolutely fantastic. I truly appreciate you being on the show. Well, thank you very much. You can follow Alan on Twitter at... Alan Giebert, that's G-U-E-B-E-R-T. Find his column at farmandfoodfile.com. You start by writing that the professor in your class for farm management uh, when you were in school brisk, uh, walked briskly to the small lectern in the third floor classroom where only the chalk dust had changed in 50 years. Boys, he announced as he settled into position, this is Agricultural Economics 20, 220 Farm Management. He was right. We were, in fact, all boys. There were a few women studying ag economics or even agriculture at the University of Illinois in 1974. None of us looked like 1974, though. We were fresh off long summers on our home farms. Our job was to learn agriculture, and that was uh, more important than any work we might have been contributing to the farm or the family's business. Many of us already knew farming, when to plant when to harvest, what ailments might strike a milk cow or fat hog. Few of us had been introduced to this ever-growing science behind all that planting, harvesting, feeding, and sweating, and ag economics, farm management, not a chance. So, Alan, if you and your... I had the same conversation. Oh, now I'm forgetting his name. Uh, he wrote a book called The Mad Cowboy, all about uh, mad cow disease. But uh, it, 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 he uh, talked about the exact same thing. If, if you and your family were successful at least maintaining a farm enough for it to be your livelihood, why did you and your family... Why did you choose to go to school? Why did your family choose to send you to school for farm management when you and your family were already managing a farm? What led to the belief that by going to college, you could improve upon what your family had already been doing successfully for generations? Well, when I was a, a young man uh, 50 years ago, farming was already changing. Farming was already moving away from the old, quote, way of life to this is a business. And by that, you know, we had heavy science coming into play, like agronomy, uh, economics, dairy science, soil science, water science even, and a lot of new programs coming in. The government was playing a larger and larger role uh, in, in the marketplace, not on the farms, but in the marketplace. And you had to adapt to that. And by adapting to that, you needed to learn. You needed to learn the science behind what the government was doing. You know, the government... You, you, the United States Department of Agriculture was a juggernaut in, in, in uh, agronomic and animal research, and you needed to get in on all of that. And 
In agriculture, over the decades, it's a proven principle that it's the early adapters that make the money. By the time the rest of the people, the rest of the farmers, dairymen, hog producers, cattlemen, learn the newer technology, the profit is already out of it. And, and, the, and the early adapters are moving on to something else. So you had to keep up in order to keep up. If you didn't keep up, you were slowly sinking. And it, it didn't matter, I suppose, if, if you were fine with the idea that you didn't want to change, you could remain. You wouldn't grow, you wouldn't be any more profitable. In fact, you'd probably be shrinking and there would be fewer and fewer opportunities for you to grow. So off to college, my brothers and I went and uh, one went on, my oldest brother went on to become, uh, uh, he graduated in Southern Illinois University, returned to the farm to milk cows with my father. And then I finished college and came home to the farm with my brother and my dad already there. But uh, there wasn't enough room. So I, I then went back to college and, and got into journalism. So uh, the gentleman I was thinking of before is Howard Lyman, uh, his 2001 book, Mad Cowboy, Plain Truth from the Cattle Rancher Who Won't Eat Meat. Uh, I thought about that book when I was reading your work because of his experience going back to school to learn agriculture as the son of a farmer of a generations long held family farm. And he talked about the way in which chemicals being used in agriculture were great for production at the beginning, but then eventually took all of the nutrients out of the soil. For you, was farming, uh, for your family at least, was farming becoming unsustainable or as a way of life? Did farming need to become a business to be sustainable for a family? Well, if you weren't going to expand, say, your base acres and grow your farm from one, from say, for um, sake of an example, from 500 acres to 1,000 acres, you couldn't accommodate a second family. Margins were always uh, being squeezed. The price per bushel was being squeezed. There were a lot of pressures. Globally, pressures started entering the U.S. farm market. You know, uh, competitors like Brazil, uh, Argentina began to really enter the market. So you needed you needed more acres in order to compete or even stay at the level of profitability for a second family, let alone a third family, or you needed to add another enterprise. Say we had a big dairy and we milked a hundred cows and my brother and I, our plan was to come home to the farm and double that number of cows, make it 200. And then we could easily afford one of us to, and then the, the, the other enterprise we thought we'd add were hog production. Well, the problem with all of that, it's a great idea. The problem with all of that is like a lot of farms back then and even many, many farms today, they're controlled by a single person or a single entity. And that, if that person doesn't want to follow your plans, you really don't have any ability to then get into the farm and, and, and stay, have any staying power. And that's exactly what happened. My father told my brother and I that the day that he borrow, he'd borrow money, and that's the only way to expand the dairy was to borrow money. Well, the, the day we borrowed money, it'd make the front page of the St. Louis paper. We grew up around St. Louis. So that was a pretty big, clear signal that it was time for me to leave the farm and go back to college. 
<laughs> so you write that over the next 50 years, we remade America's small farms and small towns into an industrial food juggernaut. Our farmers and ranchers would feed and clothe the nation, and we would immodestly and erroneously claim much of the world. Even as the percentage of personal income spent on food by all Americans fell by 11.5%. So what role did becoming a business instead of remaining a way of life, what role did that play in driving prices down? Well, it increased production and um, it made, you know, when you start adopting uh, heavy science towards these old concepts, for instance, like husbandry, I mean, try to describe animal husbandry to somebody who's not raised on a farm. And they'll just wonder, what are you what are you so in love with that cow for? I mean, the cow is sick. And you know, perhaps it's not economical to keep that cow. And you're like, well, no, 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 no. That's that's the family cow. We're gonna do, you know, hell or high water, we're gonna save that cow. So concepts like that quickly faded when you're just dealing with dollars and cents. And the example I can best give on our farm was. Like I said, we had a big dairy, even for the, the late 60s and early 70s. It was a big dairy. It's a lot of cows. And of course, it was all, we had milking machines. It was all heavily industrialized. We had more stainless steel and glass in our dairy barn than my mother ever had in her kitchen. And uh, so once a month, the university man would come around and, quote, test the milk. What they were doing was really measuring the productivity of each and every animal. And then after that, he would he would uh, fill out all the records for us. And a couple of weeks later, we'd get a record of uh, that month's production. And what it showed my father was the animals that weren't meeting the averages. And if that animal wasn't meeting the average, we had a saying, if you don't put it on in the bucket and instead you put it on your back, you're gone. So he would sell those cows to either another dairy farmer who wanted even worse animals than we had, or they would go to the stockyards in East St. Louis, Illinois, where they would quickly become hamburger at McDonald's. So that wasn't the way the old days made it work. The old days, you know, you milk cows because you needed the milk and you needed the cream. No, this, we did it because we needed the money. And it was a purely profitable enterprise. And if an animal there was eating hay and and corn and not putting enough in the bucket to justify their costs, she was gone. And that's really what happened in the 60s and the 70s across the whole spectrum. You went from small, say, cattle feeders who had 20 or 30 head of cattle every winter just to keep busy. They fed them hay and the grass that they came from the you know unused portions of their farm. Then in the spring, they would sell those cattle and make money. You can't find a 20 or 30 head cattle feeder today. You can, if you, you need to look for ones that are 2,000 or 5,000, and even 100,000 head cattle feeders are very common today, especially in Nebraska and the, and the panhandle of Texas and Colorado. So we've, we've supersized everything. We've super, supersized everything in production because margins are so thin that you need to be, you run right on the ragged edge of profitability. And then just in case you have, say, a, a drought uh, and a portion of the nation doesn't grow enough corn or soybeans or wheat, the prices will take off. And if you have enough, you're in a really good place because all of a sudden prices double or triple and you're, you're making vast profits. 
that's really what you kind of hang on for. That happens more more commonly than you would think. It happens far more often than you would think. Um, be, uh, so farmers, you know, farmers are businessmen. They're, they they just happen. Their 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 factories just happen to be their farms. And we'll get back to that idea of switching the feed for livestock from hay and grass to corn in a moment. But why do you say that the U.S. feeding the world is an erroneous claim? How important is the business of U.S. agriculture to fighting global undernourishment, malnutrition, starvation, uh, accessibility to food? Is there any evidence that the U.S. feeds the world any more or less with the business of agriculture rather than farming as a way of life? Well, there's a, a great deal of evidence. For instance, if you track U.S. exports, ag exports, and that's what we brag about quite a bit. You, American farm exports are, you know, these this amount of billions or this amount of billions, and they're we're feeding the world. You actually track where those go. They only go to the richest countries in the world. They go to Japan. They go to China. They go to Europe for the most part. They don't go to the hungry uh, parts of the world where people are starving or people are hungry. Simply because, as you know, anyone who looks into it knows, you know, hunger is not a function of production. Hunger is a function of poverty. And if you do not have the money to buy our food, we don't sell you our food. We don't even give you our food. In fact, for American um, exports, donated exports like corn or soybean or wheat or flour uh, to be even get to the nations that we donate it to, it has to generally travel on American ships. And there aren't many American ships, so we double and triple the price of that actual donation by requiring in the Farm Bill that it move on American, what we call American bottoms, American flagged bottoms. They have to be ships run by the American merchants. So we we, we don't even give that portion of it away. Um, it's pretty widespread knowledge that you know, if if you think if you think uh, hunger is a function of food, just walk in any grocery store. There's there's what forty million Americans that go to bed every night hungry, if not on the edge of starvation. And every grocery store in America is full. You've never walked in a grocery store and seen an empty shelf or empty shelves. So you know, if you don't have the money here or abroad, you don't get our food. And then the other thing is we've built a great farm policy, a five-year farm bill, each and every five years and even shorter periods of time, on the concept that American agricultural profitability is built on exports. We're going to blow a hole in that one. We blew a hole in that one last year, this year, and it's going to just get bigger because for the first time in 30 years, there's going to be a run here, and probably it's going to be something that lasts forever, that American food imports will be larger than American food exports. So we now are a net food importer, not a net food exporter like we were when we dominated commodity production, corn, soybean, wheat, cattle. Those are just all commodities. You know, they're not, quote, food. They're, they're commodities that people can then use to make food or use for food or use for even planting. But we import more food today and those imports are food they are mushrooms and wine and fine candies and chocolates and cocoa and coffee we import the high-end high-value stuff and we try to dump or export the low value or the commodity side 
and it's finally caught up with us. And we now are a negative uh, food importer. Not, o- not only not to mention uh, the impact that that has on climate change from us importing ra- ra- or exporting. I'm sorry, importing food instead of just using the food here within the United States. All the costs of climate change when it comes to shipping around the world. You write of the price of food falling after farming changed from a way of life to a business. It wasn't a miracle. It was a balancing and rebalancing of science, politics, and money. A lot of money, in fact. Mostly taxpayer money. Together, this most American trinity built the most productive and most unhealthy food machine in history's 100 centuries of agriculture. How much is that productivity dependent upon the food being of poor quality, even unhealthy? You were mentioning the change from uh, hay and grass-fed cows to corn-fed cows. I was just speaking with my uh, father-in-law, and he was telling me how the other day he had, a, or it's a couple months ago actually, he had a grass-fed steak, and he just was stunned. He was like, this is what steak tasted like when I was a kid. It doesn't taste like this anymore. So how much is that productivity of big agriculture or agriculture in general dependent on the food being of poor quality and not as healthy? Well, I don't think anybody set out to make it intentionally make it of poorer quality than what it was, but that's where we did end up because science and economics dictate really the quality of the food anymore. If you if it takes you, say, two and a half, two years, 18, 19, 20 months, say, to grow an animal from uh, birth, a, a calf, say a, a beef calf, from birth to your plate, about 15, 16 months, it'll be corn fed along the way, it'll be on your plate. If it takes you, say, 24, 25 months to get that animal to your same plate because it's grass fed, which one is the economically driven? rancher or feedlot owner going to do? Well, he's going to do the shorter one because that's going to, you know, magnify his profits and give him a better opportunity to turn over and make, put more steers through his lot. Now a cow has, you know, anatomically four stomachs and the four stomachs are required to eat grass. In fact, if you pour corn into a cow, like we do corn and soybean meal, soybean meal is the protein, corn is the starch or the sugar that allows them to gain weight. Just think of yourself eating sugar um, with a little bit of of protein thrown in so you don't die. You're not really raising a healthy animal. And that's why you have a lot of what they call um, animal health products. It's really medicine and medication. Most animals in in the United States, chickens, pigs, and and beef being the three, the biggest trinity, are are fed sub-therapeutic antibiotics so that they overcome the effects of eating grain. Pigs can eat grain, but pigs too would rather have grass. They have a single stomach, not four. But chickens are omnivores, you know, they'll eat anything. And so you feed them more grass, you feed them more grain. Chickens actually are incredibly intensively farmed and and intensively researched. For every pound of grain you feed a chicken, it'll grow a pound of chicken, a pound of poultry. And hogs are not that efficient. Hogs are maybe three to one, three pounds of grain to one pound of gain, they call it. And then cattle use seven to eight pounds of grain for each pound of gain. So they're notoriously inefficient. So um, 
And that's also the reason why you're seeing beef fall a little in favor with American consumers. You know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, the Amer American, average American per capita ate about 75 pounds of beef. Today, they only eat about 56 pounds. It's expensive and they don't care for it. It's, it's, it's less edible because we've now industrialized that process. Poultry has doubled in consumption per capita because really it's gotten cheaper and it's less fatty. So it's quote healthier, but it's not really healthier unless you buy an organic chicken because what that what that that commercial chicken was raised on i don't think you'd like to know blood meal bone meal you know soybean oil soybean meal a chalk there's a lot of things that go into a quote balanced ration that tries to emulate what the chicken would be getting out if it's just walking around and the easiest way to raise a chicken is let it out let it walk around and that's what you're seeing in in organic the rise of organic but even at that We've industrialized the process, organic process, so much that you can't. It's untrustworthy too, in my view. And and hogs are the one animal that we've really industrialized. We've made, we've turned them into absolute factories from birth, from birth to your dinner plate is six months, and they'll go from like eight and a half, nine pounds at birth to almost three hundred pounds in six months. That's how we've. We've zombied out these hogs and made them into these massive bacon machines, hams and bacon machines, um, dairy cows. When I was on a farm, we'd have cows that are eight or nine years old and we'd steady production producers, really great uh, animals, you know, friends almost. Today on a dairy farm, if you have an animal three years old, it's, it's a mistake because they're, they make two times as much milk per animal today than they did when I was on the farm. And there's only one way to do that. And as that is to study every aspect, every molecule, every atom of dairy and, and, and make it, point it towards production capacity. And that's what they've done. So we've really changed the whole basis of production and in changing the basis of production, we've also changed the, the end product. So if you look at, go to your cupboard and actually look at what you buy or go to your refrigerator and even look in there, what you, what's in there, you will not find a lot of raw food. You won't find anything more than lettuce. And I would be really hesitant to eat romaine lettuce. We, in fact, the, the head of the USDA's food inspection service said just a month ago, she never eats romaine lettuce because it's, it's probably, you know, contaminated with something, be it animal feces or chemicals. And that's a, that's a hell of an admission, isn't it? And then, um, but you look at what you have in your cupboard and that, I will promise you that 80% of it plus will be what I call manufactured food. It'll be crackers or cookies or processed in some manner. And the processing will have added sugar or salt or both. You know, because we we food manufacturers have have trained the American palate to lust after the, those two items in order to sell more bulk, and they do that to an nth degree. We were just in Europe over the summer, and my wife was commenting to a friend just the other day that the food just tasted so much more like food over there. Well, and the friend noted that it wasn't it didn't have the salt and sugar in it that American market food usually has in it. 
So it's it's evident, it's plain. Look at our health, look at the way we spend on our healthcare. We spend more as a percentage of GDP on our healthcare than we do on food. That should be telling right there. Food should be something that makes you healthy, not ill. And we really don't have that in America. And it's gonna be any, it's gonna be really a long time for any reclamation of that uh, returns. Well, that was very frightening because I love romaine lettuce. So I'm now I'm, feel like I'm going to have to uh, look into that. But you were also mentioning how organic chickens, even that organic farming process is suspect. I've had people tell me who are very uh, hesitant about eating organic or cage-free food that you don't know what those chickens are eating, that those chickens that are cage-free could be eating anything. You have no idea of what it is, and so you should be hesitant in purchasing or eating cage-free chickens. Is that true, that we have no idea when a chicken is cage-free what it is eating? Well, to some degree, if you're, I, I suppose, if you're unethical, um, but the USDA organic rules have been so loosened and are so loosely enforced. The idea that they don't, they're not followed, or that your an organic chicken may not be completely organic, I'd say, is a virtual certainty. Um, because there's just not that many people enforcing the rules. For instance, if you have a cage-free chicken, that doesn't mean the chicken is out is is cage-free. Under the USDA rule, that chicken can actually be indoors for up to eight hours a day. Doesn't mean that chicken's out walking around. It should mean that the chicken is free walking around and quote being what they say is quote happy. But you know, for the most part, it's not. It's the same with organic milk. By USDA standards, that that cow should be out on quote pasture or farmland eight hours a day. There's no chance, given the amount of organic milk sold in this country, that it comes from all cows that have that in their background. Just zero chance, none. Moreover, they, they must be fed organic grain, organic soybean, organic, organic corn. We don't raise enough organic corn or organic soy to feed all the animals that are claimed to be fed with organic grain. They just can't do it. And moreover, then you start moving to organic fruit, for instance. A couple of years ago, there's an enormous fight in the organic industry, two or three years ago, over maybe even longer, five years ago, over uh, hydroponic production of organic food. Now, by definition alone, organic food is soil. It's raised with soil. So if you want to grow something hydroponically, always only in water, how the hell can that be then organic? Well, it can be if USDA says it's organic, and that's exactly what happened. And now most of the organic tomatoes you find in your grocery store in the dead of winter, uh, and think about that, where how do these tomatoes, organic tomatoes get to me in the dead of winter? Or the blueberries, do you ever notice the price of blueberries have gone from like, say $10 a, a carton to five? Well, that's because they're hydroponically produced en masse in greenhouses you know, year round. The biggest exporter of blueberries to the United States, who never we never had blueberry imports. We always had enough blueberries raised here in Maine, Michigan, northern Indiana, some from Canada. But the biggest source of American blueberries now is, you're not going to believe this, it's Peru. Peru exports about a billion dollars of blueberries a year because we changed the organic standards here in the U.S. for hydroponic 
and the blueberry market took off. And people all over the world, no matter where you farm, you're not dumb. You see those markets, you're going to jump in them, and that's what happened to the blueberry market. That's why you see blueberries so cheap. But it doesn't mean they're organic. It means they're are, are growing organ organically under USDA rules. There's a huge movement in this country against the USDA's organic program, simply because, as you read or as your, your source tells you, it's just not... It's just not organic anymore. It's not what it was meant to be. And there's also that's also indicated in the amount of organic sales. We have about $60 billion of organic food sales in this country. It hasn't really moved a lot, grown a lot in the last two or three years. And I suspect that's because people don't believe in the, quote, organic nature of organic food that much anymore. My best advice is for you to find a local farmer if you're able to and buy direct from them. Just buy direct. Just say, I'm going to spend a day out here on the farm, see what you do. And if you're not happy with, say, the way they grow chickens or the way they make milk, don't buy their milk and don't buy their chickens. You know, that's the only thing you can really do. You know, I, I always swore people, people liked farmers, befriended farmers, because they wanted to eat like us farmers. Oh, man, I grew up, we were, we had the best food in the world every day, fresh and milk and we had a vegetable garden you know it's the size of the average well twice the size of the average home it was huge and we eat our own our own butchered pork our own butchered beef we eat like kings because we work like slaves and uh we'll never get that food back i mean we'll just i'll never get that food back we try but you have to be very very informed in order to buy what you would think, what most people would think is organic food. So I would rather not buy industrial, industrially produced food simply because I do not want to condone that system. But is it any more or less safe to eat organa organically produced food rather than industrially produced food? Oh, I would say so, sure. I would say so, organic food, still cannot be, you know, for most organically raised vegetables, for instance, uh, green beans, peas, beets, potatoes, all that soil raised, if they're raised in soil, has to be chemical free from, for five years in order to be certified as clean organic. And if, you know, you can't use any chemicals on it at all. You can't even use chemical fertilizers. So for the most part, it should be, it should be okay. But again, like I say, if you find a local organic farmer and they're of any, as we used to say on the farm, if they're of any count, they will welcome you to see what it is that they do. And then in return, you don't haggle on price, you pay them. They work 70, 80 hours a week to deliver you the best food. And the other thing you should be quite aware of, if you, if you think, if your instinct says, well, this shouldn't be in season right now, then it's not in season. Don't buy it. It's probably been shipped in from someplace. For instance, if you live in the upper Midwest or the Midwest in, in the United States, you're not going to get sweet corn, sweet corn in March on the cob or April or June or May or probably even early June. You're going to have to wait for it to come into season in June, July, and August. And likewise with tomatoes. And then September and October, guess what? You're not going to be eating those because they're not in season. 
you know, one good way to follow it perhaps is follow what the menu of say your local farm to table restaurant is serving. If they're serving say beets, you know, fresh beet salad in November, that's what's fresh. You know, that's what you ought to be focusing on those, those tube crops from the, from the ground that, you know, can, can withstand a little frost, a little cold, Swiss chard, spinach. You're not going to get leaf lettuce. You know, you're going to have to have, keep your eye on what, and, and, and be informed. You know, I, I get so tired of farm groups say, well, we just got to educate the American consumer. That's pre so presumptuous. I think the American consumer is fully educated. What they need is information. And there's a difference there. If you give them enough information, they'll make the right choice for them, not for you. And that's what you ought to be doing as a producer. You know, we spend a billion, farmers spend a billion dollars a year trying to influence what it is you buy and, and how you buy it or how it's made. Uh, you know, they want you to follow what it is they do, not what you want. So, you know, the way you get around that is, is gather information and make intelligent choices in decisions that you think are right for you or your family or your community. And that's a big deal. You know, we, it used to be more and more. We used to do that. Now, you know, we look at our checkbook and we make choices and that's not a good way to do it. And I'll give you a perfect example in my view. It's maybe more than what you want to know, but say you go to the grocery store and you buy beef. You want a, you want a ribeye steak. And, and this happened to me not too long ago, 10 years, within the last 10 years. I went to the local grocery store and they had a sale on ribeyes and I love ribeyes. So I went there and, and I go to the meat counter and they say, oh, there's a whole meat counter full of ribeyes all packaged separately. And each one of them says Angus, Angus beef, ribeye. So I asked the guy wearing a white coat, who's not a butcher, he's just the guy, you know, putting the meat out. And I said, what grade are these? You know, what, you know, what did USDA say is their quality? What is their grade? There's three grades in beef. That's um, prime, which of course, you know what that means. That's prime rib, that's prime, you know, steaks. Then there's select and then there's choice. There's only three. Well, I asked, the, the gentleman at the meat counter, what 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 are these three uh, grades? Which what which are these? He looks, he picks up a meat case, he picks up a piece of a steak, and he reads the label, and it says Angus. So I said, well, it's Angus. I said Angus is a breed. What's what's the grade? What did USDA say this this grade is? Because it, if it's if it's uh, prime, you know right from the start that it's the best. But only like six percent of all the animals raised in America grade prime. So the odds that that's going to be a prime steak are zero because they're not selling them on sale at Kroger. And then so that leaves choice or select. Of those two, what do you think is the better of the two, choice or select? I would think it's choice. It is choice. And 15 to 20% of all cattle grade choice. The rest grade select. That means 70% of the cattle in this country wow. are, are run-of-the-mill cattle. And that shouldn't be a bother if the steak I was looking at was that really right at the top of select and almost prime or almost choice. But the odds are that it would be a steak from the very bottom of select, you know, the, the last two or three percent of the animals. So I, I asked the guy again, is this, what, what grade is this? He said, they're Angus. 
And so you need to walk away. <laughs> they don't even know what they're selling. So you just need to, you just need to say, you know, you're a fool and I'm not going to be a fool, fool there. We're not a fool there in here. And, and if American consumers knew that, then, then the stores, the retailers, the, the big slaughters couldn't get away with it, but they get away with it all the time. And you know, the price you paid for that worst steak in that meat case was probably just a dollar less than you could have paid for the best steak in that, that whole meat case. Wow. So that's the difference. Do you want good quality, high quality food? Do you want food that's actually good for you and the farmer? Or do you want, you know, whatever your checkbook says and it's okay. Keep in mind that we spend half of our food dollars outside the home in restaurants and fast food. You know, we, we are on the run generally. And you, you know, that's, that's just crazy. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're overpaying for that food and you're under, and you're overpaying for the quality of that food because most of it, you know, comes off the truck, frozen truck, you know, uh, you know, the, that morning or that, that Monday. But is it absolutely necessary to have food be low cost and potentially lower quality in order for the most precarious, the most vulnerable in our society to have access to that food? Is this an absolutely necessary system that incentivizes and ensures low cost food, poor quality food, because that is the only way that people can have access to uh, any kind of food? Well, I would argue no and a loud no. In fact, a loud hell no, because, you know, you can have, you can have, look at in Europe, you spend 20, 15 to 20% more for food at the grocery store. You spend, if not more, really 30%. And you spend, you don't spend as at that much more in, in the restaurants for good food in Europe. Because uh, there's so much competition, there's so much, uh, effort to get you in for good food. You don't spend that much more in Europe, but it's what you emphasize. And I like to say it this way, you know, it's like I noted in that Baffler story, and I've done this dozens of times and across the years, given speeches, you go to a farm crowd and you'll be two, 300, 400, 500 people in the crowd. And they're all quite a bit older. They're all white haired, you know, because the, the average American farmer is 56 years old. And some like 5% of all farmland in Iowa is still owned by by widows 95 years and older. So we still have a lot of old people in agriculture. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that we're getting aged out here. But you ask this crowd, you know, how many people here have been to Europe? And you, you I'm never surprised by how many people hold up their hand because we're all largely rural Americans are from European descent. So they went back to the old country and more than half, usually two thirds to three quarters of the people raise their hand. And then you say to them, well, what do you remember about your trip to Europe? And they, they you know, they buzz around a little bit. And then I say, I mentioned, was it the food? And they go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's unbelievable. The high quality of food we had, you know, the, the fresh bread, the cheeses, the wines. I mean, every country, you know, Italy or uh, France, Belgium, Germany, you just every country we went to it, the food was great. I said, well, what was the next, what's the second thing you remember? Oh, the little villages, they're so beautiful. And, you know, they're so well kept. 
And every one of them had a bakery and a cheese, little cheese shop or a butcher shop, you know, and grocery store stores were so tiny. And of course, all the food in there was fresh. And it's just, and then you finally say, well, isn't that amazing? Do you, do you think that was an accident or do you think that's the way it is? And they look at you like, what are you saying? And then you say, well, you tell them, well, that's not an accident. Their agricultural policy emphasizes food and culture, the agriculture side, food plus living, and ours emphasizes production. And along the way, they've, they've spent a great deal of money to preserve their culture of food, and we spent a great deal of our money to destroy it. And, and they've succeeded and we've succeeded. And which one would you rather be in? You just told me you had a great time in Europe and you love those towns and you could eat like that forever. Well, you still can. I mean, you just can't vote the way you're voting. You just can't continue to, to say that the way we farm in this country is okay because it's cheap. It isn't cheap. Your health, your, health, your life, your community depended upon it. And now it's gone. Your farms are gone. Your rural communities are gone. The things that, that agriculture and food supported. And uh, and they said, well, we just can't afford it like Europe. That's the argument I've been hearing for 45 years. When I started in ag journalism, I was uh, the, the European Union, and it was small back then, six or seven countries, spent a billion dollars a year on farm programs. And we spent like 300 million. And they said, look at those crazy Europeans. They're, they're spending so much money, they're going to go broke. Well, last year, they spent $80 billion on their farm programs, and we spent about $35 billion. So the ratio is still in place, really. But look what they got for it. They made a choice, a political choice, and so did we. And it's, it's just what it is that you want. You have to decide whether you want a vibrant rural community that depends on itself and others, as opposed to one that depends on government programs and where the farmers themselves can't even grow enough food, don't even grow food to support their own habit, their eating habits. Now think about that. Which way, where would you rather live? And I'm not being an, an Anglophile or a Frenchophile or that. That's just the reality of the way it used to be in America. You write that last suggestion when you were talking to these uh, audiences about uh, when they go to Europe, what it's like when they're eating their food. You write the last suggestion that it's more of a focus on production rather than on food almost always turned the audience's warm smiles into cold frowns. They knew they had been caught in a web of their own making, the paradox that lies at the heart of the American food system. Contrary to what is often projected by rural America itself, our food doesn't come from farms with red barns, contented cows, and straw-hatted farmers holding a pitchfork in the sun's golden glow. Instead, today's food is the product of a highly industrialized, oil-fueled, climate-changing machine built largely on lax environmental standards, loose animal welfare rules, non-existent antitrust enforcement, and enormous government subsidies to deliver food that is plentiful, cheap, and increasingly harmful to the people who consume it and the rural communities that produce it. In your opinion, why do so many in farming communities want to keep that romantic vision of farming alive if that system has been, to a certain degree, to a vast degree, erased by big agriculture? 
Well, I think the romantic view is fast fading in American agriculture, rural Americas. And in my generation, when we go, it'll be gone because this the current generation, I worry about this a great deal. They don't know anything else than what they see and what they experience now. And that's this industrial industrial juggernaut. They don't, they've never seen neighbors helping neighbors. They've never raised cattle, for instance, if their corn soybean grows in central Illinois. They've never, they've never seen corn or soybeans if they're ranchers out in the western South Dakota. You know, they they're so specialized. They're like factory workers. And in and in fact, they are. They're like I said earlier, their factory is just their farm or their ranch. And they don't, they they even if they wanted to. They can't buck that system because now it's so developed for them to fall into or them to follow that they just can't get out of it. And they're so dependent on, on the system that we have built in this country. I mean, I'll give you a quick example. You, as the, the Republicans were imploding in the House of Representatives the last two weeks, they bragged about how they passed three of the four spending bills that were before them. And they did. You know the fourth bill they didn't pass because they couldn't agree on it? The farm bill. That's how that's how controversial the farm bill has gotten in Washington. They didn't have enough money in it. Uh, or it had too much money. And I mean, the, the forces uh, trying to write the farm bill were unbelievably uh, bitter and angry about what was in that bill. Uh, nobody talked about farmers. Nobody talked about food quality or health. Nobody talked about the rural economy. They just talked about money and the way and, and how much is needed to maintain the status quo. As you know, our friend Jim Hightower says, status quo is Latin for the, you know, the mess we're in. And it, and it is a mess. We we have done nothing but but make it messier in the last 30, 40 years of ag policy. You also point out that American agriculture is shot through with contradictions. For example, every farmer knows that good weather and superb crops usually means low prices and lean times. So what could be done so superb crops do not mean lean times for farmers? Well, go back to when you had multi-crop agriculture, where you didn't have one or two uh, monocultures running the Midwest like corn and soybeans today. We now grow so little wheat. It's the equivalent of the amount of wheat grown in India in 1974. That's how far we've fallen on the wheat market because we've we've glorified and 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 focused so hard on corn and soybeans because farm programs the the benefits of growing corn and soybeans are bigger than they are for growing wheat. Farmers aren't stupid. They're economic animals. They'll go where the money is. Where and so they've grown far. They grow many, many millions of acres more of corn and soybeans than they do of wheat. And wheat's had to pay the price. And it won't be long before we, we will stop exporting. We will need to import it. And that's not uncommon. We've done that in uh, several crops. For instance, rye. Oats used to be one of the biggest crops grown in America simply when we had horses. And then you, we just consume a lot of oats. We import oats now because we don't grow enough because things have moved to you know these monocultures. So we can we can have a more balanced view of farm policy. We can subsidize. We're going to subsidize agriculture anyway. Let's pick the ones we want to see back in America. For instance, there is the cap for government farm programs right now. The amount of money you're limited to accept per entity. And then to keep in mind, entities could be farms, subchapter C, 
S corporations, C corporations, regular corporations, partnerships, the $990,000 per entity. So if you farm big time, three or 4,000 acres, that's not that big anymore. You can have three or four entities and each entity can earn $990,000 in farm program payments. And that's not uncommon. So why are we allowing that and not putting a cap, say a hard cap of like $200,000 on it? Pick a number, I don't care. Anything under 990,000. And then use that money to subsidize or, in, or invest in small um, rural agriculture. I have said, if you, give, if you give me or somebody with a different idea, a dime from every dollar that's spent on farm programs, I can build it or you can build a successful rural economy, rebuild a successful rural economy, because they'll take off. They'll just do it. It's so rewarding. It's so, it'll be financially viable, again, instead of being crushed you know, by eight-wheel tractors uh, growing corn. So, you know, it's it's doable. We do it. It's being done in Europe all the time. I mean, look around. We don't have to have 5,000-acre farms. There's a farm in Illinois. It's over 50,000. 50,000 acres. Now, keep in mind, there's 640 acres in a square mile. So you do the math. You, you can see how many square miles that is. And, and ask yourself, do you think they're doing a good job? Do you think they're, they're maintaining the soil? Do you think they're not mining that farmland? And the real thing that they're actually selling is the minerals and the soil as it blows away and is shipped off. You know, how long can that go on before we turn this bountiful nation into one that's hungry? And it can happen. We've seen it happen all over the world. So we fool ourselves into believe that we're in control of nature. We aren't. I mean, that's a silly, silly pre precept. But you know, we're we're doing everything in our power to take to take you know humanity out of farming. And I'm often reminded, and just the other day I was mentioning this to a friend of mine about how in 1995 uh, Wendell Berry, a great agrarian writer Kentucky wrote a book and whose title was what are people for and in agriculture that's a question that should be asked more and more because we don't we've done everything we can and we're doing everything we can to remove more and more people from it and just boil it down to dollars and cents you know and, uh, calories um, as you know we we look we, when we were in Europe one time, I was in Europe doing stories. Um, a young Italian boy asked my family. He wanted to, you know, he had two questions. He wanted to know why uh, young men didn't live with their mothers. And, you know, my wife was drooling over this boy. What a beautiful boy. <laughs> what a lively question. But the other question he said was, why do you eat in cars in America? Well, we eat in the car because food's fuel to us. It's not community. It's not neighbors. It's not friendship. It's not warmth. It's not conversation. It's not, you know, exchange of views. It's fuel. We have to get down the road to do more. And in doing more, we're actually done less. And we've hurt, we've hurt the whole food production system as, as it used to be. And now, 50 years later, I'm deeply concerned that the institutional memory of all of what could be 
is fast fading. And but I still have hope that within a generation or two, that they're going to rediscover agriculture, and they're going, but they're going to have to rediscover it all over again because they will have forgotten it. And they're going to, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be time consuming. It's going to cause panic, but we'll go back to it because it's the only system that did work for over a hundred centuries. And we, we have to keep that in mind. It'll work again, even if it's just part ways. It doesn't have to be the whole way. We don't have to have it replace the whole current system. But the current the whole current system is not going to continue. It will collapse under its own hubris and its own weight and its inability to reproduce. Because we didn't take care of the elements that were absolutely required to grow food in this country. And we should be we're smart enough to know that. What we're not uh, is hungry enough to implement it yet. We will be. There seems to be bipartisan support, though, for big agriculture, and for good reason that, you know, they have so much money and they can give money to campaigns and give money to lobbyists. Can we, you know, as a supposed democracy, can we vote big agriculture either to reform itself or out of power? No, you have to beat it. You have to beat it, you know, through your through the ballot box. But you have, but but that was that again. That's going to take information. That's and that's what Congress doesn't have. Congress has fooled itself into thinking that it 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 knows agriculture, and and agriculture, big ag doesn't want to talk again about food. You if if constituents start talking about food and food quality and food accessibility and and affordability, and instead of talking about well. Yeah, or in communities, rural communities, instead of talking about just, you know, calories and, you know, uh, uh, you know, basically repeating the big ag line that, oh, you're going to go hungry, folks. If, if you're not going to go hungry, even if big ag fails, because if big ag's most ardent line of reasoning says, you know, get ag, get government out of our business, and we'll 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 run wild and do what it is. Well, free markets will take care of itself. Well, if in fact government was removed by Congress, you know what happened? Small ag would rise because people would see vast opportunities all of a sudden, and the and the sword that big ag has been using to slay little ag over all these many many years would be turned. And, 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 you know, these free markets would foster smaller farmers, smaller economic units, say, say five farmers get together and they share production capabilities. One farmer grows this, another farmer grows that, and, and they integrate with livestock and they help each other out so they don't have to work 60 or 70 hours a week. It'll work. It worked in the past. That's why it'll work in the future. But no, Congress, Congress is fooled by, you know, they fear they're going to go hungry. They fear that, you know, um, uh, small farmers will fail this big country. They won't. They didn't. They have never. We were exporting food in the Revolutionary War. We we exported wheat to Great Britain. And don't forget cotton, you know. So America's always been a food-producing uh, juggernaut. We can do that. But what we can't do is have Congress believe it's going to, it knows food and food production or the big ag knows food or food production better. The, the, the real beneficiaries of all of this industrialization is, of course, the industries, you know, the fertilizer industry. You know, the biggest 
potash and phosphate companies, only two or three companies in the whole world. One of them, 40% of the world market of potash, I guess, comes from where? Russia. And so, you know, we might be about about enemies, but farmers kind of like Russian potash, and we still import a lot of that stuff. So, you know, this is, you, st you start looking into these things, and you wonder, you see paradox upon paradox, and I don't think there's a lot of future in paradox. Uh, I think there's a lot more future in being honest and truthful and supporting local agriculture. Alan, one last question for you. We have been speaking with award-winning agricultural journalist Alan Giebert. He began uh, his syndicated column, The Farm and Food File, began in 1993 and appears weekly in more than 50 newspapers throughout the United States and Canada. You can follow Alan on Twitter at Alan Giebert, G-U-E-B-E-R-T. Find his column at farmandfoodfile.com, and I strongly suggest you do. We have been talking for nearly an hour, and there is far more to this article than, far more to his writing than just what we have talked about today. Alan, our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, because it's the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience may hate your response. You write, the farm bill is never imagined as a way to reverse the concentration of control into fewer and fewer hands. Few measures, if any, will slow the demise of rural America. Few, in fact, ever have, in your opinion, if big agriculture continues to grow unchecked. What will happen to rural America? I have asked that of a lot of really bright people, well-informed people, thoughtful, caring people, and they all have the same answer. Uh, it, it will collapse. This way, uh, this system will collapse under its own weight because it's not now and never has and therefore can't supply what's really required. And that's healthy, vibrant, growing community. And agriculture should be about should be about what it says it's about. It's a compound word. Agriculture should be about food communities. And when we get away from that, we are slowly getting away from what's sustainable or even regenerative. And I use those terms cautiously because they mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. But in the way in, in the way of rural America, regenerative and sustainable used to be, was in fact the way those communities grew and the way they supplied the world, especially your neighbors, your local communities with food, with high quality, low cost food. And um, after, or maybe hopefully before the collapse is complete, we'll get the, uh, we'll get that message. Alan, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. And if you don't mind, I'm going to annoy you over and over again in the future to be back on our show. I really appreciate this conversation. I learned so much from this. It reminds me of why I do this show. So thank you, Alan, so much for being on our show today. My pleasure. Take care. Bye, man. 
Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is how and wow was I pretending to know what I was talking about. But he knew what he was talking about and that's all that matters. And I definitely do not know what I'm talking about when it comes to agriculture and food. But thanks to Alan, I learned a lot about what's killing rural America. And if you have a better understanding of what's wrong with our horrible food in the States, Show your appreciation for completely commercial-free This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions, analysis, and perspectives like that of Alan that you will not hear anywhere else, and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows that you can find right now and listen to at thisishell.com show your appreciation for all that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com usually on Thursday mornings at 10am Chicago time this week it's going to be happening on Friday morning or you can show your support for completely listener supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can show your appreciation for what we do here on This Is Hell. And somebody has to because you know that to corporate and public establishment media, this is hell. So nobody else is going to feed us. On our most recent bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which went live this past Thursday, October 5th, after years of doing my damnedest to buy legal weed legally, I finally succeeded and the entire experience sucked. And not in a good way. All of the counterculture joy has been drained out of weed, and it has become just another commodity lining the pockets of corporations and Wall Street investors with the money made now leaving your local neighborhood drug dealer and going to who knows where and never to be seen again by your community. Legalizing it, as many guests said on the show, for at least 20 years would be a huge Mistake. Decriminalizing should have been the goal, but there's no way the government of the state was going to allow poor people to make money without arresting them for doing so as a crime. So instead, we have huge money ruining the culture around weed, likely adding who knows what into it, and we won't know about that for decades, and we cannot legally grow what was grown in the U.S. for millennia without paying the already rich. Following my anger at how legalizing it ruined it and my first experience buying weed legally, we shared an interview from Christmas Eve Eve 2006 when we were getting in the holiday spirit by talking about, you guessed it, weed. Following my monologue on legal weed, we we went back to when pot was still a crime and more importantly, what a crime it was. The conversation we shared was with John Getman, leader of the Coalition for Rescheduling Cannabis, which you can find out more about at uh, schedulingreform.org. John was on to talk about his then-just-published report, Marijuana Production in the United States, which revealed that cannabis was, back in 2006, 17 years ago, America's number one cash crop, a $35 billion a year business, putting it ahead of staples like corn and soybeans, despite weed being illegal. Yes, the industry, the marijuana growing industry, was doing just fine before they legalized it. The interview is actually very timely now, uh, despite being from 2006, as there are reports of a new letter from the Biden administration to the Department of Health and Human Services 
addressing the rescheduling of cannabis as a Schedule 3 rather than a Schedule 1 drug, which would make pot far less criminalized than it is today. Behind that current struggle over rescheduling weed is John Getman's Coalition for Rescheduling Cannabis. But the only way you can hear about my first time buying now legal weed legally and a talk on the marijuana industry pre-legalization and weed's possible rescheduling, as well as get a special secret discount code word for all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support is by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. As a Patreon uh, subscriber, you can also ask a question from hell of me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, and you get first crack at the next week's question from hell for our listening audience. Subscribing on Patreon is also a great way to stay on top of everything going on behind the scenes with exclusive content only for Patreon subscribers again at patreon.com slash thisishell. Will remind us what is this week's question from hell and how have our listeners responded on what are we doing Patreon today? I believe yep, Patreon today. Uh, this week's question from hell is based on this front matter. An impoverished county in Michigan is opposed to a multi-billion-dollar vehicle battery company plant because it's a Trojan horse for the Chinese Communist Party. By the way, that is pure Michigan. That sure. is 100% <laughs> uncut Bolivian grade uh, Michigan. Yep. Sure is. <laughs> Especially that part of it. Yes, sir. Up by the pinky. Yep. It gets a little stinky. <laughs> I've never heard that before. I just made it up. Oh, man. Uh, keeping it clean for the radio. Yeah. Um, this week's question from hell is How are Chinese commies sneaking into your community? <laughs> How are Chinese commies sneaking into your community? Uh, over on Patreon, Joel C. kicks us off with a link to a Wall Street Journal article that I can't access because I don't give them my money. No, but, uh, nobody does. No, I mean, we all do in a way. But, yes. Uh, anyway, in all caps, Joel replies, Sky Cranes. <laughs> I, uh, don't know what that is. I don't but know if it means the birds or... I assume it's something industrial. Giant, yeah, mm-hmm. construction equipment. Uh, Laddie S. replies, My char slew ellipsis and me. Sorry, not sorry. Some disease he's got? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Tell you want to trade him yours disease first? Yeah, right. Yeah, I'll trade you a skin disease or whatever you Whatever got. that is. Yeah. Um, Jeff Dorchin replies, in John Wick sequels and spinoffs. <laughs> so I saw John Wick 4. Spoiler alert. I fell asleep. Whoa. So I assume that, uh, you know, I was talking to Pete Valavanis, who runs Carrie's Lounge downstairs, and I was, and he said, dude, you didn't fall asleep. That actually, the movie was a dream. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Uh, man. Uh, old Grouch replies... Through American veterans of Afghanistan who drank the bottled water while stationed there. Oof. That's a new one. Um, Walter R. Slowly, via one of the goddamned happy family, or via one order of goddamned happy family at a time. All right. Um, Yairo M. replies, they're slipping in through the freaking cracks. Game over, man. Game over. <laughs> Is that an Aliens reference? I know. I'm not too sure. Yeah. Uh, 
backwards Jefferson replies, <laughs> party city stores selling secretly disguised helium-filled balloons. Beware. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at least my favorite in this list comes from a uh, public university comrade with my assistance. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, any more? Uh, that's all for Patreon. All right, so we'll be getting the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later on this week. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins, as always, their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter or X or whatever, the Musk machine, I don't know what the hell it's called, at This Is Hell Radio, or you can post it on our Discord or at our Patreon page or just email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly moment of truth. And Will will be telling us what Jeff's moment of truth is about this week in just a couple of minutes. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On October 10th, 1933, 90 years ago this week, in the small town of Pixley, California, some 15 to 18,000 migrant farm workers were on strike against cotton growers of California's Central Valley. For those of you who are wondering what's happening with the UAW strike, this morning, according to Axios, the Canadian Auto Workers Union joined the UAW by launching their own strike against General Motors early Tuesday after negotiations failed to yield a new contract. The strike worsens the labor strife for GM, which is already dealing with a historic UAW strike in the U.S. In the U.S., uh, Unifor, U-N-I-F-O-R, which represents hourly auto workers in Canada in addition to other private sector workers, said it had begun a strike at several GM plants, covering 4,280 workers. Okay, meanwhile, back in Rotten History, it's 1933, and some 15 to 18,000 migrant workers were on strike against cotton growers. The vast majority of the workers were Mexican, and I would assume still are, unless they have expired, and had been on strike for a week. In the previous three years, worker wages had fallen 75%, even while the price of cotton had risen sharply. Well, the market doesn't seem to be working correctly. Now they were demanding $1 for every 100 pounds of cotton they picked, but the ranchers were offering just 60 cents. The workers had been kicked out of company housing, so now they were without shelter, camping out in the fields, being harassed by drunk vigilantes. The now unhoused and violently targeted workers were also being denied access to, you know, things like food. And a few of their children died of starvation. But the striking workers were persistent in their strike and were even being joined by some of the would-be scabs who the ran whom the ranch owners were trying to bring in. And when scabs join the side of striking workers, you can be 100% certain the bosses, in this case the ranchers, were complete dicks. So the ranchers resorted to bullets because, again, complete dicks. As a group of migrant workers gathered to hear a speech by a strike leader, they were approached by more than 30 armed ranch owners who opened fire 
eight strikers were wounded and two people were killed. A farm worker named Dolores Hernandez and a representative of the Mexican consulate named Delfino Davila. In another incident nearby the same day, a farm worker named Pedro Subia was shot and killed by ranchers and police. And police! Why not let them join in on the fun? And three others were wounded. Still, the strike would continue for another two weeks until an agreement was finally reached. In the settlement, for 100 pounds of cotton, the workers would be paid 75 cents, equivalent to about $17.50 in today's money, but still short of their original demand for a dollar. Five months later, eight ranch owners were on trial for murder, but, of course, would be acquitted by an all-white jury because of white supremacy, white privilege, and racism. Keeping that history in mind, whenever you hear anyone critical of striking workers, the labor movement, or union organizing, remember, greedy bosses have historically gotten away with murder. And that's a rotten history that the establishment media loves to ignore any race. That's why workers strike. And that's rotten history. Will, who is our upcoming guest here on this week's show? Coming up, we'll have the return of Haras Tir, who will be on to discuss her Jacobin Magazine article, The Rot of the Crypto Economy Goes Deeper Than Sam Bankman Freed. Hadass is an activist and author of the People's A People's Guide to Capitalism, an introduction to Marxist economics, and a regular contributor at Jacobin. And Will, what's Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff pioneers a new literary form called word coleslaw, <laughs> good with a hot link sandwich and a beer. Uh, and a heads up on that, Jeff is also working on something in response to what is happening in Gaza and in Israel. So, who knows? The T's may change by Thursday. In breaking news, I have been vindicated. Since the show began way back in 1996, I have been using a word to describe the person I am in, lo in love with. In fact, this Saturday is our 36th anniversary. However, if you are a regular listener of the show, you know we are not married and have no plans to ever get hitched. So what are we celebrating the anniversary of if we've never got a license to make our relationship official with the government or any religion? As the love of my life explained when asked by my family, what is it the anniversary of your first date, your first kiss? She replied, our first everything. <laughs> but she is not my wife because anyone who ever read the essay by feminist Robin Morgan, Why I Want a Wife, anyone who's ever read that knows that there's a lot of patriarchal and misogynist baggage that goes along with that term. So, as my love and I have been cohabiting since the early 1990s, calling her my girlfriend seemed ludicrous. So, since the show began, I've always referred to her as my girly, which was inspired by a feminist collection of fiction and poetry published in the late 80s called Girly Mag. It was a way to reclaim the word and take away its sexist power, and it was actually, uh, the publisher of it was a pretty famous novelist in New York City right now, but I don't have the permission to say their name on air, so I'll just leave it at that. 
All that said, listeners have told me that the word girly made them feel uncomfortable. I understand. Kind of made me feel uncomfortable until I had a feminist tell me it was about empowerment. Then, the New York Times, also known as the Grey Lady, which has its own problems, the New York Times has redeemed me. New York Times staff editor Iva Dixit had an article in the New York Times magazine posted on September 19th with the headline, The girlies know Oppenheimer was actually about us. Yes, it's a film about a famous middle-aged scientist, but it also captures the primal dissonance of being a young woman. And I love that band, Primal Dissonance. They're really great. Dixit writes, excuse me as I hit my cough button. (coughs) I missed my cough button. Dixit writes, R.I.P. to the girl bosses and ladies who dominated the internet of the 2010s now taking their place in the canon is the girly, the tongue-in-cheek subrequet used by so many young women chronicling their lives online. The summer that just blazed by belonged unequivocally to the girls and girlies, cultural archetypes who embodied in their despondency and their delight the incongruities of being young and female in America. Unlike the always hustling girl boss, the girlies do not dream of labor. They pick at girl dinner, girl dinners, go on hot girl walks or rotten bed with Sylvia Plath paperbacks. I've now been in the uh, Iva Dixit writes, I've now been in now been to the theater four times to watch J. Robert Oppenheimer manufacture and then wallow in his own unhappiness. And at some point along the way, I came to realize that this film is as they say, for the girlies. As he's accused of being a communist sympathizer and publicly ridiculed in a kangaroo trial. Oh my God, have you ever had a kangaroo trial? The jury is just hopping mad. The once venerated scientist finds each of his beliefs collapsing. The great Oppenheimer realizes that no amount of personal brilliance can counter the force of the state. He finally sees that he is devoted his intellect to a system that was rigged against him, one that took advantage of his brilliance and then punished him for it. The same man who once earnestly referred to himself as a prophet is now paralyzed by his inability to either have or act on any firm conviction. The veneer of his certainty in his own power had been stripped away. For a great man like him, it took the twin shames of the bomb's destruction and public disgrace to have his life-altering yet basic realization about his own powerlessness become recognizable. But this feeling of betrayal at the hands of the same system that once adulated you is not solely the domain of men who reach a certain age and come to the uncomfortable realization that after a lifetime of revolving around them, the world is now moving on indifferent or even hostile to their existence. This is a rule and a warning that life has drilled into girls from age 13, if not sooner. The same powers that have displayed you like a trophy will not hesitate to spit you out the moment you have ceased to be useful. Oppenheimer needed greatness to understand that. Dixit concludes, but the girlies, we have always known that. So yeah, the person, the love of my life is my girly. Well, not mine, but she's definitely a girly. 
and thoroughly aware of the way the system betrays the same women it at other times excessively praises, admires, flatters, gushes over. Women, they do all these things when it suits that system's needs, only to always betray women later. Because whether it's the patriarchy or capitalism, girlies are fully aware how their power is taken from them. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. Thanks to Nicholas Mann for shadowing Will today. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. And now you know, this is definitely not the media. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.